technical issues. Some of you are the, uh, as I said, the guerrilla fighters, you're the saboteurs, you're undercover, you got your cam gear on, all right? And there's others of you who are just, you're like the front line, all right? Line the tanks up on the front line and let's just roll them out and see how many people we can blow up, all right? But the bottom line is what we actually need to do is we need to get to the uh, inside of conflict, which is what this series is all about. So what I'd like to start with today, some of you might remember in the middle of January, there was a, um, a, a quite an intense conflict uh, situation actually occurred in Woodridge in Brisbane. And uh, I was watching the ABC News and I saw this clip and I'm going to show you the clip in a minute. It was the lead item on the ABC News. And uh, I'm partly showing it because I think it's really funny, all right, but also because it's all about conflict. So uh, here we go. This is back in the middle of January. Good evening, David Kernow with ABC News. There's hope of a peaceful resolution to the days of racial violence on the streets of Logan, south of Brisbane. One of the families at the centre of the dispute has packed up and moved to the Gold Coast after the Queensland government stepped in. Reporter James Kelly joins us now from Woodridge. And James, for several days now we've seen those extraordinary scenes of violent clashes between Islander and Indigenous communities. What's the situation there tonight? Well, David, it's relatively quiet here tonight. The police are maintaining routine checks of the street, which has almost returned to normal. It's a far cry from what we saw over the past few days when armed groups of people clashed after a spate of vandalism attacks on cars and homes. The breakthrough happened earlier today. A handshake signalled the end to days of racial violence. This is over. We want to live peace. They want to live, live in peace. The Pacific Islander community also wanted the feud to end. We just want apologies to the Indigenous for whatever happened, but we need to work as one. We just like to do Say sorry for everything that what's been going on in the street. I know there's people out there that want to move out for the incident that happened. Um, we've heard a lot of people. The breakthrough came after Tim Briggs, his wife and four children, agreed to take up a government offer to move to public housing on the Gold Coast. I'm not running away from the problems, but we want to start a new life, me and my wife and my family. They wanted to get out of the community a long time ago. And why is that? Because they wanted somewhere else to live, obviously. Didn't they like, out of here. Didn't they like Woodridge? I don't think anybody likes Woodridge. But Mr Briggs says it's been a difficult time. Yeah, yeah oh, of course it is because, you know, this, this, this has happened. <laughs> Things happen, but we need to move on. The other family involved in the feud say they have no desire to move. Yeah, we're staying here, yeah. Are you happy about that? Yeah, we're happy about it. The family of Richard Saunders, who died after a fight in a park in 2008, says despite today's handshakes, racial tensions still exist in this community. With this family, the, the issue has been sort of resolved. You know? But the issues in this community are still here. The problems aren't here. They're still here. They ain't going away. Nobody's addressing these issues. That is a, uh, a classic conflict case. The interesting thing about it is the whole way through the, uh, the news story, they keep using the word resolution. Now, if you're smart enough, which I'm sure most of you are, you'd realise there's not really any resolution to the conflict there at all. It's just really shipping someone out and getting them away from the other people that they're actually fighting with. Um, so the big question this morning is why is that? Why don't, why don't they get to a resolution? What's actually underlying conflict? What's, what are the nuts and bolts underneath it? And as I said last week, we can, I can tell you lots of nice kind of superficial surface level strategies to understand um, the, the surface level of conflict and give you some tips and techniques to actually 
do a little bit better with the way that you manage it, but that's not going to help that much. What's going to help is to get to the actual heart of it. Last week I read a case study, and I'd like to read it again uh, and ask some questions uh, about the case study. Rob could be very impatient with his wife and children, especially at the end of a hard day. He would come home from work longing to get away from the pressures of daily life. He was going through a tough transition at work and was more agitated than normal. Sleepless nights were also taking a toll. One evening, Rob was set on a calm evening without distractions, but as he came in the door, several of his children were arguing. The phone was ringing and his wife was noticeably irritated that he was late. That's when it unraveled. Rob began to yell at his children, I'm sick and tired of this mess and noise when I come home from work. All I ask for is a little peace and quiet. Looking at his wife, Rob said, I'm out of here. I'll come back once I cool off and you get this place under control. Until then, I'm not speaking to you. In response, Rob's wife, Nina, grew cold and bitter as she reflected on the way she'd been treated. So the question again in that case study is what's actually going on underneath? What's the underlying mechanism for all conflict? All the conflict about who sits where in the car, who gets to the bathroom first, who gets to eat the last chocolate chip biscuit, uh, what about disagreements between wives and husbands? What's the underlying mechanism that's going on there and between workers and bosses? Well, there's a uh, section in James that is particularly, the book of James in the Bible, that's particularly instructive regarding the underlying mechanism. And I would appeal to you, even if you're not someone who follows Jesus, um, to, to listen to this and measure it against whether you actually think this is what happens. Because one of the really strong arguments for the truthfulness and the authority of the Bible is it actually fits the core human condition really, really well. So you be the judge of that today. If you're not part of the project and you don't love Jesus at this stage, you be the judge of whether the Bible gets this right or not. It's out of James chapter 4. James asks the exact same question I've been asking for the last five minutes. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Good question. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James is going to give us the answer. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And this is starting to look a bit ugly, but the beautiful thing about what James is writing in James 4 is he says this next, but he gives more grace. Now, grace is a, a biblical word for he gives more kindness. He gives more mercy. He gives more help. He gives forgiveness. Then he goes on to say, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Here's the bottom line. What James wants you to know and he, what he wants me to know this morning is what causes fights and quarrels amongst us is actually not external to us. 
It's internal to us. It's not circumstances. The problem with conflict is not what's going on the outside, but what's going on on the inside. It's in us. And this doesn't fit the Garden of Eden kind of model where Adam and Eve worked out really early that the best thing to do when you get into trouble is to blame someone else and to justify yourself and deceive yourself. We often say things like, if the environment was different, I would be different. He makes me so angry. If you were the mother of these kids, you'd understand. This traffic drives me nuts. If you had to deal with what I have to deal with, you'd do this too. And all of those kind of comments and all of those kind of thoughts speak of a cause that's external to us. And what James is saying to you today is it's not external to you. Most of your troubles are not external to you. They're internal to you. And if we want to understand our anger, James is saying you better look inside. And I actually wrote a blog about this this week that the courage to change is not ultimately the boldness and the grit your teeth moment where you've actually got to change. The courage to change is being prepared to look at your own heart in all of its ugliness. Because grace malfunctions, God's goodness toward you malfunctions when it doesn't map perfectly onto your need. And the only way that you can get the grace of God to map perfectly onto your need is if you're prepared to have a close look at yourself. James says this, he says, look, the whole conflict situation starts with desires. And we're going to make, I want to make a couple of comments about desires. We don't think desires are bad. James is not talking about evil desires at the start of James chapter 4. He's just saying people want stuff, all right? We don't have an issue with that, all right? We don't think desires are evil, okay? And we're not heading down at the project here. We're not heading down the road of the Stoics, all right? And the Stoics kind of thought that desires, to, to some extent, uh, were pretty unnecessary and they kind of got in the way most of the time. I was driving past Newtown State School in the middle of our last little run of wet and uh, they had a really interesting comment up on their bulletin board kind of announcement board out the front of their school and I took a photo of it. It was raining, I think, at the time and I thought, I've got to take a photo of this because it'll be useful sometime and it turns out it's useful today. Here's what it said. You may not be able to quite make it out, but down the bottom right-hand corner, it says, our life is what our thoughts make it. Is that true? I think it is. Our life isn't what our thoughts make it. This is, uh, if you go right back, apparently this uh, is attributed to uh, Marcus Aurelius, who is one of the five good Caesars, they say. And he actually wrote this. It's very, very much sitting right in the pocket of Stoicism. And the modern-day incarnation of it is actually cognitive behavioural therapy that counsellors use. That's what it is. You've just, your emotions are just a product of your thoughts. So just change your thoughts and all your emotions change. And there's a sense like the emotions are not that useful. They tend to just get in the way most of the time. So just focus on your thoughts. Well, that's actually not biblical. Now, it is true that our thoughts affect our emotions. And it is true that our thoughts affect our lives. But that's, I don't think that's true. That's not a biblical statement. If that was coming out of the Bible, it would say something like, our life is dependent upon God and how he, he intersects with our hearts. All right? And at the end of the day, if God doesn't intersect with us, our life becomes what our hearts desire. That's what it is. Now, just in case you came to the wrong place, you just need to know we're not Buddhist either. All right? So if you're expecting me to sit down and close my eyes and 
in some kind of contorted fashion and pull some sort of yoga thing. It's not going to happen, all right? But the interesting thing about the Buddhists is that the Buddhists think desires are bad too. The whole goal, or maybe not the whole goal, but one of the central goals of Buddhism is that suffering comes from unfulfilled desires. So the answer to suffering is to not desire anything. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> All right? Yeah, if you can get to the point where you don't desire anything, they call that nirvana. All right? Some of you only know nirvana as a band. Nirvana is a place where you don't suffer anymore because you don't desire anything anymore. And the really good news, and I've spoken to some Buddhists, the really good news is that they, is that they say very, very few people can ever make it. Well, that's really encouraging. Let's commit your life, the rest of your life to something. You know, 40 years of your life and there's a pretty good chance you're not going to make it. We don't agree with the Buddhists. We think desires are okay. And I think in James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 there, James says desires are okay. And the whole of the book of Psalms, really, almost all the way through it, is a catalogue of someone with desires someone who's getting their desires filled and sometimes someone who's grieving that they really wanted something and they, that they really desired and they didn't get it. You know what the problem is? This is the ultimate problem. This is a pretty common narrative in the project. The real problem is that what we desire takes control of our hearts and it actually takes the role in our hearts that belongs to God. You see, if my heart is being ruled by a desire, then there's only two ways that we can respond to each other. If you help me get what I desire, we're going to get along fine. Our relationship will be fine. But if you stand in my way, I'm going to experience anger, frustration and discouragement when I'm with you. My problem is not the situation that I'm in with the other person. It's not the situation you're in with the other person. Your problem is that a legitimate desire has actually taken control of your heart. You want something and you want it really, really badly, so badly that you're serving the God that's just taken a hold of your heart. There's an imposter and you're acting in accord with that desire and not in accord with what God says is best. You see, the biblical term for this is you're an idolater. You've started serving another God. And what happens is if if I start serving something that I want and that becomes a God and it takes control over my heart and you stand in my way, well, now we've got a problem, don't we? I'm either going to fight to get what I want or I'm going to give in. But, and what tends to happen most of the time is that we fight to get what we want. It's always a battle for what rules and controls the heart because what controls the heart controls behaviour. And this is very clear in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, where Paul says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is your main problem. This is my main problem. We worship all the time, all the time. I was at a conference and in service on Friday with some guru of cognitive behavioral therapy, some doctor dude who uh, was telling everyone how not to be anxious, all right? And really what he was doing is uh, teaching people to... Um, Trust in the God of probability, all right? It's, and maybe I'll get into that later, but he's basically saying, what are the chances it's going to happen to you? Well, it's not going to happen, so don't be anxious. I'm just going, well, that's like going down to the local racetrack, right? And it's like 100 to 1, so you'll be okay. You can just relax and be okay, all right? But I went down there, and I was sitting next to a guy. It turns out this guy was kind of mini-famous, way more famous than me. He's been on Australian Story, 
But I sat there. I, honestly, I don't even know whether the guy goes to a church, he's religious or anything. I just sat there and I started unfolding this whole thing about worship to him. And, you know, he got it. And, you know, where we were sitting, we are sitting in a temple, the Broncos Leagues Club. <laughs> All right? And he said that to me. He goes, well, man, he goes... Well, this is a very religious place, isn't it? And I said, too right. Look at all the statues out there and all the photos on the walls. All right? It's a temple to sport and to, uh, to the Broncos. You see, we worship all the time. And when you don't worship God, you find something else. That's what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, when people stop believing in God, they don't then believe in nothing. They believe in anything. This is everyone's problem. You trust, hope, pursue, obey, sacrifice for trust in something all the time whether it be yourself whether it be money whether it be cars whether it be jesus there's a continual second by second moment by moment transaction of trust and worship that's happening in every single person's heart and the chances are there's a whole bunch of you sitting here today that aren't worshiping jesus all right which is why one of the things i say at uh to, uh, to worship leaders is when you start leading worship a really good way to phrase it is not let's come and worship Jesus let's turn our worship to Jesus because you walk in worshiping you weren't made to worship you walk in worshiping and in the midst of conflict what actually happens is a false imposter God comes in and grabs a hold of your heart and you serve it you obey it you sacrifice for it and you trust in it and you say I have to get this but you might be asking underneath okay well what's the mechanism show me the, the the process well let me show you this i want you to imagine this water bottle here is what you want what your desires are okay and i'll take you through it this is how it works you start off you see i'm holding that with an open hand you start off and that's what you want that's what your desires are is it an evil thing for a husband to come home from work and want to have a peaceful house Anyone like to have a pun of that? Is that evil? No, it's not. All right? That's nice. I'm a husband. All right? I like coming home to a peaceful house. Okay? But you notice here, if the, the, what's critical is that the husband is actually holding his want or his desire in an open hand. Okay? Because any husbands that come home during happy hour and they've got kids between about 5 and 7 o'clock is pretty messy. All right? So it's a good chance... You're not going to get what you want at that point in time. But there's nothing wrong with desiring it or wanting it. But when it actually becomes a problem is when the husband or you starts to grasp onto your want. All right? Now the problem is that if you're going to get this off me, you're going to have to fight me for it. Conflict. You see that? So the critical thing, and I'll just rip you through a few slides here the critical thing is that we start with desires you want something there's no problem there yet and then we move to demands i'd be more patient if you do what i say when rob does not get what he wants he lashes out nina's simple desire for a gentle husband has morphed into a demand for one as soon as it transitions to a demand, as soon as the hand grasps onto the want, it's become a demand and conflict starts. All right? And I would say that would be the case for 99% of the conflict that you have in your life is because the want has actually taken charge of your heart and it's become a demand. 
And then it just gets even more messy. Just want to run through really quickly some typical demands that people have and the strategies they use to get them and see if it fits any of you. It might just fit me. That's okay. If I'm the only one who gets convicted of this, I'm okay with that. All right? But if there was a one or two of you who thought, yeah, I think I'd do that, that would just warm my heart. All right? Because I've just got a fellow person who's got some serious heart trouble. All right? Here we go. Demands. The first one's this. Comfort. Anyone here demand comfort every now and then? I want, must have, and deserve some rest and relaxation. You'd better not stop me from getting it. That's a demand. What about approval? I want, must have, and deserve your approval, and you'd better give it. That's a big one. Especially if you were here last week and I talked about uh, the difference between turtles and cowboys. Turtles tend to be wired to the, uh, um, the approval thing a little bit more. All right, and they're probably just going to be quiet, but they're just going to sit there and, f- and fume a little bit more and steam up. And you wonder why it's all gone all foggy across their eyes. It's because they're all steamed up on the inside because no one's actually validating them the way that they actually want it or demand it. Probably is more accurate. Some of you are uh, demand success. I want, must have, and deserve to be successful, and I'll do anything to achieve it. And then you've got your power and control freaks. All right, I'm sure in this number we'd have a few of these, okay? I want, must have, and deserve power, control, and I'll do anything to get it. These things are typical demands that actually grab a hold of your heart. And then what actually happens, once you've got a demand, well, you need to have a strategy to actually get it, don't you? All right? So here's some strategies. Some people, it's just about winning, all right? They've got to win, This strategy is typically chosen by people who like power, success or comfort. This person hates failure, discomfort and being out of control. Must win. Some people though, their strategy to get what they want is just to please people. This is favoured by people who need approval. They're quick to agree and have a hard time saying no because they fear rejection. Often they're overcommitted. And the last main strategy I just wanted to cover today is avoidance. Some people just avoid. And this is used by people who want approval or comfort. Uh, Often they'll live alone. Uh, They've got benefits in living alone because they can just avoid facing up to stuff. There's no possibility of rejection and no discomfort. So now everyone's sitting there thinking, okay, I wonder who's living alone. Can we tell who they are? They're probably sitting on their own just, well, no, I shouldn't say that. All the people sitting on their own are going, no, I've got a family, man. Demands. Want, demand, and then it becomes a need. This, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this because this is epidemic in our society. Absolutely epidemic. Something desirable is now essential. I'm actually convinced that I can't live without it. There was a study last year in 2012 in America that uh, surveyed the texting habits of teenagers and it actually concluded... I'll read the quote here. The study conducted by texting app company Text Plus reveals that 50% of teens believe they would not be able to live for a week without their mobile phones. According to the results, 61% of respondents said that they cannot survive without texting. Isn't that interesting? You've got teenagers in the state saying, I, I literally think I'm going to die if I don't have my phone. <laughs> All right? 
But this is the story about our culture. See, people have got a whole bunch of, in inverted commas, desire needs. And what that's actually done, what's actually happened is a desire need has shifted into a survival need. And like what we're uh, used to saying is we're used to saying things like, I need a drink of water. Now, if you're very thirsty, it is true physically that you actually need a drink of water, otherwise you're going to die or get very unhealthy. True? But you don't need a chocolate bar the same way that you need a drink of water, do you? You don't need, what about this one? A coffee. You don't need a coffee, do you? Yeah, yeah, listen to him. They go, no, that's heresy, brother. Get him out of the church. Is this guy leading the church and he's saying things like that? You don't actually need it, right? But what's actually happened in our society is there's been a continual process by which we've transitioned from recognising that we had wants and we had uh, desire-type needs to a society now where we talk about survival needs most of the time. I need you to do this for me. I need you to stop talking to me like that. Otherwise, I feel like I'm going to die. It's a survival thing. And that intensifies conflict. When you uh, shift to survival needs, it actually intensifies conflict. But this actually fits really well. And here's my little um, diversion just for five minutes or so. The underlying foundation for our culture is evolution. All right? So if evolution is true, then there must be a biological explanation for every emotion and feeling and disappointment and discouragement that everyone has. True? So what we need to do, and this is, you just need to know, this is where psychology and counselling to a large extent are actually headed, is they're trying to find a chemical reason for everything. And hopefully the plan is that we're actually going to find some drugs that will counter the chemical thing that's actually going on. And I hope you can see, but when you head in that direction you're actually heading headlong into a mindset that says, I actually have a chemical problem inside of me and it is biological and it's a concrete need and it's as biological as needing calcium, vitamin C and every other vitamin that we might take to feel healthy. All right? Now, I just have to say this, right? Because some of you are just going, yeah, but isn't there some stuff that's chemical that goes on inside of people? Yes, there is. All right? But you know what's happening in the midst of whatever the chemical thing is that's happening? An active heart is operating right in the midst of that all the time. It always is. All right? This was really interesting. This guy, someone asked this uh, uh, professor, this guy with a PhD on Friday, he's, they said, when people come to get therapy for you for anxiety disorders, do you ever recommend that they go and take drugs? Like antidepressants and anxiety-suppressing drugs. He made a really interesting statement. It was probably the first time I've ever heard anyone say something like this in a, in a secular field. He said this. He said, you know what? He said, the research is clear. He said, if someone takes anxiety-suppressing drugs and gets cognitive behavioural therapy at the same time, they actually recover quicker than if they just do cognitive behavioural therapy on its own. Right? But here's what he said. He said, at the end of uh, the drugs or at the end of the cognitive behavioural therapy, what it actually does is it sets up, um, this is what he called it, he called it a safety mechanism for the person. And what they do then is it's kind of, and I don't mean to be rude about it because some of you might be on medication, right? So don't hear me being rude about it, but it becomes almost like a security blanket to them, the, the, uh, the drugs do, all right? And he actually said the research is quite clear that, the quicker resolution to all of the person's issues actually comes from not being on drugs at all. 
because of that security blanket kind of mechanism at the end of the medication or at the end of the therapy, all right? Which is really interesting. So he makes this comment. He says, I actually recommend that people don't go on, on, on medication. Yeah, obviously he would send them to go on medication. I'm not a doctor, right? So don't go out and throw your pills in the, in the bin, right? You need to go and find a good doctor and trust your doctor and work out what you need to do. But the bottom line here is it's not just chemical. It's not just biological. If you say that it's just chemical and just biological, you're saying what everyone else out there who doesn't believe in God and doesn't believe in an active heart is actually saying, all right? And one thing no one's ever been able to answer me in these... Uh, kind of context is no one's ever been able to tell me whether the when you get down to the nitty-gritty of it is it cause or is it effect is the bad chemical that's going on in the body is that the cause of the depression or is that the effect of another mechanism all right i think most of the time it's the effect and sometimes people need help with that sometimes people need to take some medication to, it's almost like a cold and flu tablet, right? Because it just kind of helps them to actually deal with what the real issue is. So I'm not anti-medication, but I'm just saying don't buy the line that it's all chemical, all right? Because this makes it messy when it comes to needs. So you could ask the question, what do you need? Well, what you need is actually dependent on your imagination and whatever the context is that you're in, all right? Some of you are going... What I need to do is leave church right now, <laughs> all right? You know, I don't like this. I don't like what this guy's saying, right? Does he talk like this all the time? And those who come would say, yeah, he does, all right? So we're sorry about that, all right? But it depends on your context. If you're in the middle of a really messy day at work and someone comes up to you and says, what do you need? You're probably going to go, I need a holiday, man, all right? Which is, I need a break. And someone, if there's someone who, for example, who's got very poor self-esteem, you say to them, what do you need? And they're going to go, I need significance. I need to feel good about myself. And so need can just be messed up and just interpreted in a thousand different ways. And as I said before, the biological approach to people that we've got at the moment has actually turned people's psychological needs into the same kind of hardcore medical need or biological need as calcium and vitamin C. And the first guy who actually kicked all this off psychologically was Freud, all right? Because Freud actually basically said that you've got a biological locked-in, built-in need for sex. And hasn't that worked for us? <laughs> all right? Which is part of the reason why you've got people running around saying, we've just got to give... You can't stop people doing it. You've got people on TV now saying you can't stop husbands cheating on their wives because they're just... Well, they're just reproducing the species all right they're just kind of hardwired to do it so we'll just make sure they do it safely and they can go for it because somehow it's part of our psychology and our biology but the guy that really got this kicking off big time was a guy called Abraham Maslow and uh, Maslow came up with this uh, hierarchy of needs was what he actually called it and uh, it looks something like this this is uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs you can't really read it you don't really need to but basically he said people have got needs uh, they start off with the physiological, which is they need uh, food, water, sleep, exercise. And as you go through the hierarchy, you get to a point of self-actualization, um, which is really interesting. I've just found out lately that Maslow is a big new age kind of proponent, which uh, I used to teach this in the school, right? I don't anymore. I'm just telling you. Look at what Maslow actually wrote in his book Toward a Psychology of Being. 
this is this is it this is where this is one of your main proponents saying that psychological needs are actually biological check this out what makes people neurotic my answer was in brief that neurosis seemed at its core and in its beginning to be a deficiency disease that it was born out of being deprived of certain satisfactions which i call needs in the same sense that water and amino acids and calcium are needs did you get that he just said psychological needs are as critical and as important to survival as calcium and vitamin C. He's, he's made the leap. Namely, their absence produces illness. Most neuroses involved ungratified wishes for safety, for belongingness and identification, for close love relationships and for respect and prestige. And now we're actually in a situation at the moment where to try and take the stigma away from people struggling emotionally, we talk about everyone being mentally sick, all right? And somehow that takes the stigma away. You know what the Bible would say? All of us have got a heart sickness, all right? The Bible doesn't take away the stigma by saying some people are sick and some people aren't. The Bible would say all of you got a heart sickness, all right? And this is the problem with conflict is you get something that you're worshipping that takes control of your heart, and you follow it and you obey it and it just messes with everything. And on top of that, if you want to make it any worse, we've got a whole marketing machine that wants to persuade you that of, of your survival need of a Jeep Cherokee. All right? Do you get what I'm saying? That's what it is, isn't it? They market on TV and it's like, I'm going to die if I don't have a Tic Tac. Well, you might die if you have one. All right? And it's incredibly messy. And then what you've actually had, oh, I'm going to stop on this rant in a sec. I'll, I'll get a bit less opinionated in about five minutes, right? Then you've got the whole Christian community have got on board with this and you have all these books like the five love languages that come out. They kind of say you're an empty beaker and you've got to fill you up and if you're dysfunctional and hurting people, it's because people aren't loving you enough, all right? So you've got that and even... Uh, it's a bit of a sacred cow, but I, I could even have a bit of a swing at Larry Crabb and John Eldridge, to be honest, because they're all saying you got treated badly in the past, and until you get that sort of stuff fixed up, uh, your life's just going to be messy. But you know what? This guy uh, who I love reading is a guy called uh, Ed Welsh. Here's what he says about that. The good news for psychological needs is that Christ fills us with identity, significance, personal respect and self-worth. He makes us feel good about ourselves. Now, I'll just let you know, he's, he's setting you up, all right? Because he, does, he doesn't think that's a good thing, all right? Because what it does is it turns God into a divine Santa Claus. And his job is to meet my needs. Instead, the real issue is my job is to worship him. That's what my job is. Not to go to God to get what I need and write my uh, Christmas list. Here's what Ed Welsh goes on to say. But is that really the gospel? Doesn't the gospel, in a very real sense, obliterate our preoccupation with ourselves, equipping us to be preoccupied with loving God and others? Does that sound better? I think it sounds a heck of a lot better already. Is it possible that looking for self-worth or significance is a fundamentally misguided goal? Should we be asking other questions such as, why am I so interested in me? Tim Keller wrote a book called, um, just trying to remember what it is. 
uh, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. You see, God's truth is actually counterintuitive. Christians, when you look at a need, you just kind of think, well, I need, to fill, I need to get that need filled. But you know what? It may not be a need like you think it's a need. And God might want to deal with it in a way that you aren't even thinking about because, you know, most of the time God works in a counterintuitive way. You know, we, we see someone who's got really bad, in inverted commas, self-esteem and we think, well, we've got to find 100 Bible verses in the Bible about how wonderful they are. Maybe the answer is just not even thinking about yourself. Maybe it's about teaching someone to love God and to love others. And I said this to the guy sitting next to me down at this conference. I said, you know, I've been to lots of these things. And I said, they almost never talk about loving anyone else. They all talk about coping. That's setting the bar high, isn't it? We just want to cope. Just get to your deathbed and you go, I coped. All right? That's not a good answer to say, I coped. All right? And one thing this guy kept saying on Fridays, he said, ask people, he goes, what's in the way of what you want to do in your life? Well, that's in the way of what you want to do in your life, isn't it? Because the best thing that you could do in your life is not be self-obsessive and curved in on yourself, but actually curved outwards toward God and toward others. And this comes as no surprise, because if you've read the Gospels, Jesus says in the Gospels, he says the two great commands are to love who first? Love God and to love who next? Your neighbour. Excellent. Good. Top of the class. That's just how it works. I said to this guy on Friday, I said, have you ever noticed that people who are doing really well don't think about themselves that much most of the time? He goes, yeah, it's strange how that works, isn't it? Well, it's kind of, it's in the Bible. Anyhow, needs. It's messy. And you don't have a whole bunch of survival needs. I'm just telling you. You've got some, but not as many as you think. All right? Then it shifts from needs onto expectation. This is where it gets messy. If I need this, and uh, I'm really glad I've got a bottle full of water here because this is a survival need, but I just want you to imagine that what's in there is actually not water, but the thing that you want, that you've turned into a survival need. All right? If it's a survival need and I need it to survive and you love me, you better actually give me what I want. Because <laughs> I'm going to die if you don't give me what I want. And this is the point at which relationships begin to be affected. If I really believe this is a need, then if you love me, you'll meet my need. And you know what happens next? People don't do it, do they? Idiots. All right, you're an idiot. All right, I'm going to die if I don't get this and you're not doing it for me. All right, and then we get really disappointed. You didn't do it. Anger breaks out. It starts to become personal. You're standing in the way of what rules my heart. There's only one other option. If you're an idiot, you need to get punished. All right, so we punish people because you didn't do this. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to respond in anger. All right, you guys, uh, I'm sure if, uh, if you're anything like me at all, even 10%, you've worked out some really funky ways to punish people when they don't do what you want them to do. True? I'll give you a couple just to get you started. What about this one? Silent treatment. I'm just not going to talk to you, champ. That's it. I'm going to smoke you out. I'm throwing smoke bombs. I'm not going to talk. You better come out. Come out. No, you filthy sinner come out you better just confess and you notice in all of this is that you've actually taken on 
some kind of judging role in God's place because someone didn't actually fulfill what, was, what you thought was a survival word. What about this one? Look, the, the uh, smoke grenades, uh, that kind of stuff, that's turtle kind of warfare, right? Cowboy warfare. Whoa, man, you just load the tongue up, set it loose, all right? Just say what you need to say, get on the offensive, punish them with that. Some people, uh, there's a bit of vengeance and sometimes even violence. I um, was talking to some students in a class of mine at school here and I asked them, I said, what do you guys do to punish your parents to get out of, you know, sometimes to get out of trouble and all that sort of stuff when you don't like what they're doing, when you want something else? And a bunch of the kids just go, fake cry. That just does it for us, you know. Just make them feel bad. Just cry about it. It was mostly girls, all right, because it generally doesn't look good when dudes fake cry. Um, but uh, people, yeah, dads would just go, ah, you're an idiot. Just stop crying, will you? They're probably a bit too hard on them, but, or maybe not. But anyway, the girls would uh, fake cry and the parents would kind of ease up and they'd end up getting what they wanted, all right. That was interesting. One kid um, said to me, he goes, look, I just get really irritated when my mum's giving me a lecture and I just wanted to kind of shut up, so I'm just, I stick the iPod in while she's giving me the lecture. I'm just going, that's a good play. That's going to work for you. Not. <laughs> All right. What mum is going to go, yeah, good call. All right. Put the iPod on and uh, in and turn it up. It's not going to work for you. All right. Sarcasm. What about that one? Anyone use sarcasm? I remember, um, I remember, I think it was mum and dad are here today, but I remember my uh, nan and pop every now and then. I don't know whether it was mum or dad would say to us, well, they haven't talked for two to three weeks. Nan and pop, all right? And it's really, that's probably a couple of turtles in conflict going at each other, all right? And what you do is you just don't talk. Let's smoke each other out. It's like a staring competition, you know? The first one to talk loses and I win. I get what I want. So what's the way, well, how do you punish? How do you punish people when they don't give you what you want? Because, yeah. Because you'd have your ways. I'm sure you would. I mean, we would have a very interesting conversation if everyone was brutally honest about how they punish people for not giving them what they want. Now listen. Here's where I'm going to finish. If you love God most, you love other people well. Someone asked me at a party yesterday, I said, how do you balance out love for God, love for spouse, love for family, doing your job at work? And I answered with this comment. I said, loving God is the love that makes all the other loves the right size. So you need to love God first, all right? And this isn't about a beat-up. This isn't about Sondergill getting on your case, about how you're punching each other up in your head. You know, I mean, James kind of says in James 4, he says, you guys actually fight with each other and murder each other which seems to be a, uh, a reference to what Jesus said, where if you actually hate someone, it's, it's like murder. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying the way out of this is love for God. That's why later on in James chapter 4, James actually calls the people adulterous. He says that here in verse uh, 3 and 4, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I want to say this to you. When something else comes in and masters your heart in the way that Christ is meant to master your heart, you've just had an affair if you're a Christian. You've just gone out and committed adultery. You've had sex with someone else's wife or someone else's husband. 
That's what James is saying. The relationship between God and his church is a husband to a wife. And when you fight with other people because something else is taking charge of your heart, you've had an affair with something else. Now, the really sad thing is that he doesn't like that, right? He's jealous, and it talks about that in James 4. It says he's jealous. You know why people get jealous? Because they love someone. That's why they get jealous. He's not just a psycho that goes around smashing people all the time because he's just really angry that someone broke a moral law. He actually loves you. And when you actually walk away from him and you let something else rule your heart, you've just committed adultery on him. And what does it say later on in James chapter 4? I highlighted this before. But he gives more grace. There's more grace. Adulterers can get clean. You can get clean. And so James says down in verse 8, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So if you're in the midst of conflict at the moment, and I had some conflict in the middle of this week, and I'll be honest with you, like there's sometimes early in the week when I was preparing this message, I'm just going, oh, I've got some pretty cool stuff. But, you know, it was just, it needed to hit the ground. And then middle of the week, I had some conflict going on, I'm just going, this is terrible. I hate this, all right? Then all of a sudden, I'm just going, oh, okay, he's messing with me again, right? Because what God often does is he messes with me before I have to preach something, right? He goes, here you go, Peter. You can just, I'm just going to mess with something here. And and you can just see what's going on. And then when you stand up and talk on Sunday, you can speak as someone who's not the guru who's telling everyone what to do, but someone who's going, I've got to do this too. And here's what God says about how to handle it. Here's what God says about what's really wrong. And this week, I realized, I just probably as clearly as I've, I have for a long time, I realized this adultery that goes on when I end up in conflict because there's something I want. Because this week I wanted something and I wanted it more than I wanted Jesus. And I loved it more than I loved Jesus. But you know what he does? I'm not that guy today. Because he cleanses and he cleans. And if you're not a Christian here today, this is what Jesus does. This is why he came. He didn't come down to point the finger at your heart and say, what a loser. What an idiot. He'd go, you're in a mess, man. Woman, you're in a mess. You need some serious help. And then he helps. And when the church sounds like they're sitting on their throne and they're judging other people, they don't sound like Jesus. So don't walk away with that from me today. I'm not standing here saying you're not good enough. I'm saying you've, here's what your problem is and Jesus has a remedy for you. Fix what your heart loves. Let him fix what your heart loves. And the conflict will subside. Will you end up with no conflict? No, you won't. All right? It's not like the silver bullet because God's got the most dysfunctional family that's probably ever existed because they kill each other in his family. He still has conflict, but you know what? It totally changes conflict around. This is like your, I'm just giving you the fire extinguisher, right? It just takes the heat out of it. I pray for you. We're going to sing one more tune at the end. How about uh, we just pray? But he gives more grace. He gives more grace.
forgiveness for adulterers. He gives more kindness for those who are unkind. He gives more love for those who are not loving. He gives more patience for those who are not patient. He gives more tender words for those who are harsh speakers. He gives more grace. He gives more goodness. And God, truly, it's your love for us that helps us to love. First uh, John says that this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ died for us. So God, I thank you so much that we love you and we love others because you loved us first. Someone had to break the deadlock and it was never going to be us. It wasn't ever going to be us. So God, I pray and Jesus, I pray that today that you would rule our hearts, that you would rule, that we would worship you second by second, minute by minute. And that that would spin out into love for other people. And God, I just pray in this church, I pray for people who are visiting, that there would be an overflow of love for other people as their love for you puts everything into perspective. God, I pray that you'd help us to uh, be the peacemakers. Not the war makers, not the conflict bringers. You said, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, you said, blessed, how happy. In a state of happiness and blessing are people who are peacemakers. And God, we just know that the world needs more peacemakers. We need more peacemakers. We need This church needs more peacemakers. The church in Toowoomba needs more peacemakers. God, that you'd make us peacemakers. And as we deal with you primarily in our conflict and we look internally to the mechanism that's happening in our heart, that you'd make us peacemakers, that we'd go out and we'd unify people and not separate, that we wouldn't divide because we feel so committed and addicted to our needs, our survival needs of what we think they are. So God, I thank you for your tenderness today. I thank you that your kindness leads people who have failed to turn, to repent, to confess. God, you're you're too good to us. Too good to us. But that's your style. You're just too good at doing everything you do.